Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I hope that this August is treating you well. My name is Brandon Stiver, and I'm grateful for the chance to connect with you today. As we are in the summer months, we are going to get into another one of our compilation episodes. Thank you guys for your feedback. Thank you guys for subscribing. Thank you for liking. Thank you for sharing reviews. All of that helps us get out this word about orphan excellence, about getting kids safe, getting kids into family, and really rallying the church and parachurch organizations to, to do right by orphans and vulnerable children. So thank you for everything that you're doing to support the podcast. Uh, I am once again flying solo as we get into one of these compilations. We're doing the One Million Home Take at a recast where uh, we get to uh, hear back from multiple friends, but really kind of threading together some of these themes. And so uh, our friend and podcast founder, Phil Dark, uh, will be back next month. So uh, obviously... We're so uh, grateful for Phil's uh, work in this space, and and he'll be back with me next month in September. But we're going to get into another one of these compilations. So over the last uh, month or so, we've been able to listen to some care leaders in the orphan care space. We've been able to talk about what it looks like to transition to family care. And today we're going to be getting into another theme. And uh, the podcast episodes that we'll be pulling from in this episode are all within the last year and a half because what we're going to be looking at is conflict. When we talk about caring for orphans and vulnerable children with excellence, you know, those things don't happen within a vacuum. Those things happen within um, different contexts, different populations. Um, There are political strife, there is ethnic strife, um, and hopefully... (laughs) There's also some countries that are going in the right direction, right, where there is harmony and unity. But we know that those large-scale external factors, what's going on in the macro system, what's going on with uh, politics and war, um, those uh, things have a profound impact on childhood vulnerability. And it creates orphans, right? When we talk about, well, what do you think about orphans? You know, one of the things that we can all definitely think about is the fact that war and conflict creates more orphans. So we are going to do a a survey from three different countries on three different continents today, revisiting some of the conflicts. And I'll just kind of share as we get into Ukraine, El Salvador, and Myanmar, all of these are still ongoing situations. These are all ongoing situations. These uh, different issues have not been resolved. So even as we are looking back um, over these podcasts from the last year and a half um, and learn from Ruslan, Kara, and Ashley, uh, I would also just like to continue to invite each of our listeners to be praying because kids continue to be at risk in these situations and uh, precious God-image-bearing people um, are losing their lives. So um, there's no more pertinent place for us to start than to hear from our friend Ruslan Malusha. We had the chance to sit down with Ruslan really within the first month of the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion. And uh, just because it is not in the news cycle like it was, you know, uh, back in March and April, it is still nonetheless a very 
prominent thing that is happening um, in the U.S. You know, I'm here in the Seattle-Tacoma area, and I still continue to see those people that are putting out their Ukraine flags. And, uh, of course, the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia remain in our prayers as we are now six months into this. Uh, this uh, Ruslan is going to share with us some uh, some of what he's seen and what his uh, family has seen. And I would just encourage you guys to uh, continue to follow along with him. Um, what we've seen, you know, in the months since we recorded with Ruslan is that this continues to be a humanitarian crisis. Um, there are about 9,000 Ukrainian soldiers that have been killed, another 5,587 civilians that have been killed, as well as another 7,890 that have been wounded. So just when we look at fatalities, um, the numbers are jarring, but even beyond the conflict itself, the violence itself, um, the children, which uh, we'll talk about specifically in this clip with Ruslan, um, even aside from them, it, it is creating other issues, right? Like this global food crisis where there's a lot of where there's a lot of reliance, you know, like on Ukrainian wheat, for example, where now because of this conflict, you know, if you look at like the Horn of Africa, there's about 80 million people that are experiencing extreme hunger. And one of the reasons because of that is due to the conflict in Ukraine. So, so when we, when we pray to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, uh, you can kind of see why we need that peace. So, uh, a little bit of a somber episode, uh, maybe in some regards, because we are talking about conflict, but you know, we're not afraid to jump into the hard stuff here on Think Orphan. So, uh, I am, uh, grateful and honored to uh, bring this first segment, which is going to be a little bit longer than our, than our uh, last two, but uh, I'm excited to jump into this content with Ruslan Malusha. Looking at the historical lens, looking at the geopolitical lens, you know, a lot of what we've seen specifically within orphan care, you know, when the Iron Curtain came down and people started to go into Romania and you guys were doing great work in Ukraine, and we have people that are engaged in Moldova right now, like changing the way we care and other NGOs, you know, Hope and Homes for Children. Like there are a lot of what we started to see over the last 30 years as far as orphan care actually came when the USSR broke up. And what we're seeing right now, you know, this is like the first, you know, invasion back into one of those countries that were a part of the Warsaw Pact, right? And so um, I just kind of want to, if, if, if it doesn't end you know, with just Ukraine, like, like you're suggesting, um, you know, what is that going to mean, you know, for all these children, you know, the, the great gains that you guys have made in Ukraine, right. With Ukraine without orphans, what does it mean for, you know, I, I always think of the Bucharest early intervention project, right. Which was this, you know, really phenomenal longitudinal study that we got on why orphanages aren't great for kids. Right. And that was all in Romania, right. All in that same region. What is this going to mean for orphaned and vulnerable children if this war continues on? And before I answer that, I mean, by the way, Soviet Union was an evil regime too. <laughs> like oh, of course, yeah. World War II was that we, we had one evil regime, you know, being sort Fighting of on one another, side, yeah. another on the other, and you know, allies was aligned with one of. So it's come. It can get complicated. But of I course. also just want to be clear that Soviet Soviet Union was was mm -hmm. bad 
situation. Yeah, Stalin was, Stalin was Stalin was terrible. Was I mean, yeah. he killed more people within his own country than than exactly. you know than than even died that's in the war, and that was like seventeen million or something. I mean, it's that's crazy. why I call them inhuman. Same, you can see the same thing with Putin. Yeah, Putin has no compassion for his people. He has no regard for his people. It's sad to see how still how many people still support him in Russia, but it's very clear that that he he's ready to sacrifice Russian people as much as he's ready to kill Ukrainians. Yeah, and that's one of the that one of the signs that we are dealing with this evil regime. It's demonic. Uh, it is. Yeah, it is. Demonic. It is it's absolutely demonic. demonic. And, and we see this unfold now practically in Ukraine with bombings. It's not accident that this has happened. And we can ask ourselves what what should take place for a neighboring country that has a lot of ties to get to the point when they're ready to bomb civilians to bomb hospitals to i just saw before this uh, before coming on this podcast i saw an update from Mariupol. remember that drama theater that got bombed mm-hmm. i mean the new evidence the new report is 300 people that you know, that got killed there and i'm afraid that this is not the last count just understanding the situation there so going back to your question brandon i think but we probably don't, I mean, regardless of how things continue, this is already a horrible disaster. Like, so if you think about children, specifically children in Ukraine, uh, I, I say these days that every Ukrainian has been affected by the war and is suffering and is some kind of distress. And of course, it means every child is suffering. So the scale of this is something that I I, I don't even I try not to even think about because it becomes really overwhelming. Like as someone who spent years in, you know, working with vulnerable children who has some understanding of trauma and impact on trauma, I almost don't want to think what uh, we'll be dealing with or already are dealing with just because of the magnitude of this problem. And then because when the war, so we have so many children who have actual experience of being bombed, you know, on being on scene fighting. We have a family of our friends who we helped to came to come stay in our area, just an hour drive, and we spend a lot of time with them. And you know, they have they have three kids under twelve, and they spend a week living in the bathroom, hiding from bombings. Mm. So it's, again, fortunately, the the building was not hit and so on, but that just like ten minutes away from where we live. So 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 thinking about the impact of that, and of course, there are vulnerable children who were there already vulnerable, and. Uh, there are many, many people are now trying to evacuate children from children or from children's centers or from orphanages. So you have children experiencing multiple traumas and already before, and now sort of there is a layer of this horrible situation that they have. So, so my point is that it's already a very difficult, complex, uh, almost unimaginable challenge that we have, regardless of how the war is going to continue. And of course, as long as the war continues, as it is now, it's just going to be becoming bigger and bigger. We have like 135, I think, children has been killed. It, that's official number that we were able to verify, the government was able to verify. No one knows the real number. And can you say that number again, Ruslan? It's one, I mean, it's changing actually every day, but sure. it, I think it's been 135 as of yesterday. I might, I'll need to double check, but... Yeah. It is, it is, I'm sure it's already bigger now. And this is official verified number that yeah. government was able to track. Yeah. And, uh, and even one is, is, is mm. the strategy. And of now course. we have multiple of this. 
Yeah. So and undoubtedly so, that's an under underreported number. You know, is 135 is terrible, but it's undoubtedly higher than that. You can't drop that many bombs and expect that you're yeah. not going to be killing e children. Exactly, because they're like in Mariupol, there is no way to track. It's all circumstantial it's, kind of reporting and, and so on. Same in some places in Kharkiv and even in north of Kiev, you probably heard these names, European Buche, just 15 minutes drive from where I live, 15, 20 minutes. And the places have been basically destroyed. Yeah. So there are mass graves of, of people. Yeah. Like That blows my mind that there is a mass grave 20 minutes drive from my home. Just people that, and it's actually a better scenario because there are many people that have never been able to be buried. So it's almost like this is not the worst situation. The worst situation, they just stay where they were killed. Yeah. And, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely inconceivable. And, and, you know, it starts to, when we have these large conflicts and this has been a, this has been a, a conversation that we've been having over the last several months on think orphan, because we've looked at other conflicts as well, you know, a largely internal conflicts, you know, Ethiopia, Myanmar, you know, some of these other places. Um, but that this is happening the way it's happening is just um, one country into another. This is a nuclear power. These are all factors that we Very have. Very modern not... warfare. You yes. have fighting with each other, duck fights. I've never seen a real duck it's... fight. Now I've seen videos of those. Mm. You have ships fighting. You have you know, rockets and missiles. So it's like, yeah, it's I don't, it's a new way. I mean, it's something new from that perspective. Yeah, it's a whole other level. And the effects that it's having on children, I mean, you mentioned children that have already died, verified cases. At the same time, we have children that are fleeing. Um, a, a, a source that I regularly use is Associated Press. I was reading there yesterday. They quoted the UN saying that 4.3 million of the 7.5 million Ukrainian children have now fled their homes, mm -hmm. including about yeah. 1.8 million refugees who have left the country altogether. So over half of the kids in Ukraine have been forcibly displaced and almost 2 million of them have had to leave the country altogether. So when we talk about refugees, right? And now we're really also talking about children outside of parental care, which is what this podcast is, is all about. They're a part of that. Yeah, They're a absolutely part. a part of that because that is uh, such a common occurrence in these conflict zones. So, um, you know, what are some of those other effects of the war on children? You know, those that have been forcibly displaced, like I just mentioned, or even those that have remained. Obviously, we already, you know, have have at least one official death toll. But um, what are some of those others that people maybe aren't even thinking about? I mean, there are some like obvious of a disruption of everything. I mean, that is affecting, uh, like, because even those who have not left already, their lives have been disrupted. But we know for sure like half the children has been disrupted in major ways. Everything about them, like about their life have been changed. Some it has it easier, like, I mean, in a way our family has been disrupted too, but at least we, we have a relative stability and more or less, we kind of know where that we can stay here. So, but there is huge disruptions. Then another, I mean, trauma, and even small things like, <laughs> I know that some people may feel like, oh, this is not a big deal. But for example, children not being able to take their toys. I know it sounds almost ridiculous in this, but it's going to be a big deal for children. Mm -hmm. You know, like my kids missed guinea pigs. You know, we have mm -hmm. parents, like we have in-laws who are still in Kiev, refusing to leave and we really worried for them. But, but it was a bit surprised for me to see that children are very worried about guinea pigs that we had and they also stay there. So again, it's it's kind of, uh, interesting to think about this, but that's how children think. That's how they re respond to these kind of events. So, so there are multiple layers of 
traumatic experience that these children are going through. And then you have you have children from orphanages or for, who have been already, you know, vulnerable or abused, and that it just adds, you know, they already live with this sense of threat and instability and 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 not being able to develop trust. And now suddenly it's kind of all taken to 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 an entire new level by what's going on. Something else that I think some many people may not have been thinking, this is kind of a specific thing about this situation, is that when the war started in eastern Ukraine in 2014, it started pretty bad, bad too. Yeah. I mean, the, any war is bad, but sort of scale, in terms of scale, it was quite bad. And we had 1.5 million internally displaced people from that region, people who left their home pretty much like now, but it was seven, eight years ago many children too. So they relocated. So imagine, I know a lot of those, so imagine a family, maybe let's say they would have children two or five years old, they relocated, let's say to Kiev, they started everything from the scratch, they build their home, build business, and, I, and I'm talking about real cases now. And now eight years later, so this child you know, was five, now he or she might be 12. A lot of them are foster parents, you know, children or adopted children. And now they have to become refugees again in 10 years. For the same because of the same thing essentially also i mean fleeing bombings and killings and so on so there is an i i don't know if there is an actually a term for that like double refugee i don't know how to say it but i i don't see this being discussed or this being reported but we are looking at millions of people is that experience so definitely hundreds of thousands of people people who are going through a similar, if not worse, traumatic experience in less than 10 years, including many children. You know, and as we think about, you know, these children that are having to flee, they are being forcibly displaced, you know, that presents all sorts of other child protection, you know, challenges, right? Because now these kids are in transit. Um, you know, obviously we know that that uh, men of adult fighting age are not allowed to leave the country. So we're going to have at least separation from one parent in all of those regards. Um, you know, and we regularly see whenever whenever populations are forcibly displaced, there is always a disproportionate amount of children. So that's a common occurrence. So those stats that I was just giving from the UN, that is that is typical when we see yeah, these refugee situations. Stat. I've seen it with my own eyes. I was on the yeah. border in Ukraine and Poland just last week. And while the wave has subsided because there was many more, I mean, it was just a wave, literally. Now it's still there, but it's not as... But I was just standing and watching people who arrive on foot from Ukraine. And a typical picture would be of a woman with two or three children, sometimes other women there, maybe you know, a relative or friends or a group of five, six, with a volunteer carrying a car, a shopping cart with their you know, belongings. So that's that I've been there, I've stood there for maybe 40 minutes and mm -hmm. this repeated one after the other, after the other. That's that's what I was seeing, looking at. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's inconceivable, you know, for, for me. And yet now your eyes are actually conceiving it, right? It's, it's, it's really, it's yeah, really crazy. Was, it was again, one of the hardest I could see and they, and you could see on their faces kind of mixed emotions because yes, they were sort of crossing into safety in a way, but, but, uh, but uh, this separation from their husband, it's not just separate. Like I, you know, I spend a great deal of time traveling. So I would, you know, leave family and then come back. 
but there was like but this it's very different because mm -hmm. they know that they leave their fathers their husbands their brothers behind in a war situation and there is a good chance that they might not see them again yeah so yeah. that makes this i mean much much harder much harder and i, I want to ask one question along the child protection front which we're seeing with these forcibly displaced populations which we're seeing with kids that have remained behind and gotten harmed or even killed um i was just and this is not on your prep document so i apologize ruslan but no um save the children put out um put out a call for a moratorium on intercountry adoption and surrogacy in this time of conflict um, i'm going to read from one child protection expert this was me on linkedin shortly before this uh, so there's a very fluid situation even for us uh, hosts and producers um, so uh, rebecca smith she's a child protection expert she wrote while adoption can be a wonderful way to provide a safe and forever family to a child we must make sure that legal safeguards are in place due to the ongoing crisis in ukraine it is currently impossible to determine whether a child is in fact adoptable and to ensure that commercial or criminal gain fraud child trafficking and the deception of birth parents do not play any part on the adoption process separated and unaccompanied children are extremely vulnerable to trafficking and exploitation and require additional protection um, and I just kind of wanted to throw that out there because we always want to be very, um, very honest about the child protection and risks, you know, that these kids are facing, um, you know, obviously Ukraine without orphans and, you know, a lot of your legacy has focused on that now domestic adoption, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but can you even share just a little bit about, you know, like, for example, I got a call. We don't get a lot of calls over here at 1 million home, but I did get a call um the other day from somebody that had heard us at some outreach and said hey i'm pastor so-and-so from florida and um you know i'm calling because one of my congregants wants to adopt a ukrainian you know and i'm thinking well we don't have we're, we're largely based in sub-saharan africa we don't really have much in you know eastern europe at all i give him a referral to some organization that he could talk with that we know and trust but um, that's one of the things that are on people's mind right now, which I think comes from good intention, but it also there are child protection, you know, concerns, especially around intercountry adoption. Can you can you speak to that a little bit right now and, and maybe just kind of weave in what can the international community be doing, um, you know, and, and what is this a time for us to be doing? Thank, I mean, thank you. Uh, in terms of adoption, I understand the no, like the sentiment. I mean, it's war. Are probably children who are losing parents so why don't we adopt or let's adopt i would say i want to be careful because i understand the complexity of this but i would say i i think adoption is not something we really need to be thinking about at this moment for for a couple of reasons and one of them is because the systems are disrupted and then and which makes it a high possibility of things going wrong like you just heard two still most of children they are that's not what they need primarily so they have at least one of if not even a mother they have you know, someone other some other relative and there is a big like in the ukrainian society now there is a one there have been changes that you know god has used ukraine without orphans others so i would say that there is a really strong commitment to do everything we can to care for our people, to care for our children, even in this situation. So, so my point is that we need to, we need. I think the priority now needs to be protecting, uh, helping children to cope with what's going on, strengthening their support system. So, so thinking much more about how we can support those mothers, like millions of mothers with children. 
So I would say instead of trying to figure out how to adapt, what probably is not going to happen. I, I know it sounds sorry. I'll be quite straightforward. I mean, it's a war in my country, so I'm like these days. I'm usually less diplomatic than normal. So I'd say let, let's let's kind of figure out how we can support those mothers. So it may not be as fancy. It may not be as kind of as as as, as cool. But this is what's needed and of course there are children that that might need to be adopted eventually but it's going to take a while to to figure even like even the children who are available for adoption let's say like they might be now in germany or in italy like there is there may not be legal process at all to do that even for those that are clearly eligible for adoption so I, i'm not discouraging us from thinking about this completely i'm just saying that this is a time that we need to to focus on on with other things and and primarily to support those who are already caring for children. Well, uh, thank you again to Ruslan. You know, when we were able to record that with him earlier this year, um, you know, he had a pretty stacked schedule and he made time for us to share. So we're grateful to share that once again and just again invite that you would be praying for the people in Ukraine, uh, be praying for peace, be praying for shalom. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Ruslan mentioned there, you know, were these different levels, right? You have the macro level all the way down to the family level. We're seeing families uh, torn apart and, you know, these things that are happening at that big macro level in regards to politics, economy, the war itself, um, you know, that, that applies. You know, we can apply that same filter when we think about other conflicts. And that's certainly the case in El Salvador. So, uh we did record last year an episode with Kara Wilson Garcia from Project Red. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a little bit closer to home for many of us. We have a lot of listeners that are in the United States, and this is a conflict here in North America. Um, and it's an internal conflict, especially with a lot of uh, gangs. And, you know, um, Kara is going to walk us through what that looks like. And, and it even explains, again, kind of these broader geopolitical things when we talk about asylum seekers that have traveled from Central America and come to our borders in Texas and California and all along that border, um, you know, the reality is that there's real conflict. There's real uh, strife going on in the Northern Triangle, and that certainly includes El Salvador. So, um, you know, since we recorded um, with uh, Kara, again, a lot of the gang violence, um, anarchy <laughs> that's too strong of a word and it's not nationwide but there are certainly areas like that um where uh the government has tried to crack down um there was earlier this year a state of emergency that went in place in may they've seen mass arrests of over forty thousand people in el salvador um and and because of that some people have lost their civil liberties right so it's kind of like we have one problem that's creating another they had a surge of about 80 murders within a given area, and then that kind of led to this mass arrest of 40,000 people. So uh, we're applying uh, human solutions to uh, human problems, and unfortunately the result continues to be brokenness, which is why we really need uh, God's grace and God's intervention. So um, I'm uh, excited. Well, excited is probably the wrong word, but I'm, I'm again, honored to uh, bring some insight from our friend Kara Wilson Garcia at Project Red, you know, sharing with us a little bit about the conflict within El Salvador. And, you know, we could have actually shared on a few different um, 
conflicts, right? We had Tom Rott. We did a recast with him on the Care Leavers, Care Leaders uh, podcast recently. This is happening in in um, in Ethiopia still. You know, last episode we had Spencer sharing about you know what's going on in Haiti, right, and their transition. But the truth is, they actually had an assassination of their president, you know, last year, and and continue to have some very turbulent times in certain areas of Port-au-Prince. So we could have actually done this with a lot of our guests, and uh, but we are uh, looking forward to sharing with you a little bit and remembering about what's going on in the Northern Triangle. So uh, let's hear from our friend Kara Wilson-Garcia about El Salvador. And, you know, one of the vulnerabilities, you know, that's specific to El Salvador, um, you know, that a lot of these families are facing is uh, what we're aware of as uh, a lot of kind of inner turmoil and conflict that has been happening in El Salvador. You know, one of the ways that El Salvador has been in the news um, is because a lot of asylum seekers um, that have uh, come to our southern border in the last few years are actually coming from El Salvador. And I would just love to kind of get your view of being an American living in El Salvador rather than the other way around. Um, you know, what is the context like and, and what is it like for the people that you're working with? What is it like for your staff? Um, you know, and, and what should we on this side, you know, of the border be aware of that's, that's actually happening in El Salvador and the adverse effect that's happening on communities and families and children. Oh man, that's a big question. It's, it's, uh, it's really awful. <laughs> the, the gang violence here is, is what defines everything. So, um, everything in society, um, I, it's really been, I will, I, I will say thankfully, um, and miraculously nothing um terrible has ever happened to any of our team members in the 10 10 and a half years that we've been going out and visiting families and of course we've like learned how to how to deal with these interactions but you know most of us have all been held at gunpoint at some point and going and and we're stopped i have such an advantage in that i'm white I'm like really really white and I like there's no disguising that I I cannot pass for a Salvadoran no matter how long I live here for and so I have that advantage and I've I mean I've used it and you know even last year one of our you know, one of our team members was being held at gunpoint and I, and I went over and said, Hey, I'm Kara, I'm a gringa. And, and it, and it was like, okay, you're good. So, so that's my perspective and what a blessing to be able to have that, uh, you know, out, but for the people who live this day after day after day, they're oppressed they're uh, just living in fear. It's awful. Like you can't, we, we have, for example, like we, one of the things we, we've kind of gotten a little bit into some microloan, very micro microloan 
things, but we had to stop all of that because of extortions and because you can't do that. You can't have any sort of small business because you'll, you'll be extorted and then it's going to be worse for you after. So it's um, everywhere we go, we have to ask permission. We have, you know, we've covered our vehicles with all kinds of like cheesy logos and Bible verses so that, you know, cause gangs respect Christians and, um, and you know, you just learn like the tricks of the trade and it's, but it's, it's really awful and it only continues to get worse and it's, it's just an oppressive, dark, dark place. And when you think about vulnerable children coming out of um, an orphanage, especially if they've been living in institutional care for like five or 10 years, and then they're being reintegrated with a family that they've never met before. This is a lot of the early cases that we saw into one of these communities. I mean, what do you expect is going to happen? They're going to automatically join a gang because that is what is going to save their lives literally. So it, it, it is a really, it's a really tough uh, challenge that we have, but it's, it's part of our work too. Well, thank you to Kara for sharing with our audience about what Project Red is doing in El Salvador and, and also the, the broader context in which they're serving, which includes a lot of this internal strife, all this gang activity, murder and so forth. It's, it's, it's really tragic. And yet we're also grateful for people like Kara and her team at Project Red that are working in the midst of that and uh, bringing God's peace, supporting at-risk families. And uh, so we're just grateful for her. Um, also grateful for our next guest, Ashley Heiligman from Global Child Advocates. We're actually going to hopefully get Ashley again on in this uh, coming soon. Um, but we did uh, catch up with her about um, earlier in 2021 after the coup in Myanmar. So Global Child Advocates has been working uh, right on that border between Thailand and Myanmar. They've had a lot of their work focused amongst the Burmese people. And uh, certainly when we talk about the coup that took place last year, early last year, um, that had a tremendous impact on their work and uh, also led to a lot more vulnerability, right? Since the military coup, they've killed 2,215 opponents. Uh, so these are, these are killings, you know, extrajudicial killings by the military government, right? And it has, again, affected more broadly within Myanmar, where there's now 100, what, sorry, 1.1 million less jobs. So when we talk about what are the things that lead to childhood vulnerability, well, one of them is poverty, right? We've covered that. And uh, when there are less jobs, there's more poverty. So this uh, coup continues to have a massive impact. Uh, Ashley's going to share a little bit about how their team has pivoted uh, in the midst of that. And again, we want to think about geopolitical, right? So this war in Ukraine um, has caused, you know, massive extreme hunger in Africa. Russia has all these embargoes placed on them, especially they were giving so much oil to Europe and now there's an embargo. So where's that oil going? Well, it's actually going to Myanmar because now we have these two corrupt regimes um, that are now creating this economy between them, right? So all of these things are quite interconnected. I, I know there might be a little bit of a, of a you know, quandary as far as how does Ruslan's conversation connect with Ashley's here, but they are connected. 
that's that's the world that we live in. So um, I uh, want to get into this content now with Ashley Heiligman from Global Child Advocates, sharing a little bit about how their team has pivoted and worked uh, within a completely new context now. Um, even though it's the old context, it's now a new context because of the military coup in Myanmar. So let's hear from Ashley. One of the primary uh, places that you guys have been serving uh, has been in Myanmar. Um, and, you know, we're recording this um, here in the summer 2021 and, and earlier this year, as people are likely aware from newscasts and so forth, um, there was a military coup and, and there's been a, you know, a, a, a military uh what do you say, junta, junta, whatever? There's been there's there's been military control in that country before, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it's really destabilized. And uh, Global Child Advocates is there in Mesot, Thailand, um, which is right near the border of Thailand and Myanmar. Um, but much of the work that you guys have done has actually focused in Myanmar and among Burmese people. So, when this coup took place earlier this year, um, you know how has that negatively or adversely affected uh, orphans and vulnerable children in Myanmar. Um, we'll just kind of start at the, at the kid level. I mean, what is, what is all of this that we hear in the news? We turn on whatever our news station is and we hear about this. What does it mean for, for the kids that this podcast focuses on? Orphans, vulnerable children, at-risk kids. What, is, what does it look like right now there? Um, the whole situation, I mean, it's like, it was so broken before. And then it was starting to make this a little bit of progress like for these 10 years and then, but you still had people on the bottom that weren't benefiting from that. Um, and so it just, the vulnerability has just increased exponentially, I think for trafficking, for orphanhood. I think during COVID, a lot of children, there was a lot of rapid reintegration. So you have a lot of kids that have been sent home from orphanages that are now in communities and families and that adjustment is happening. And then now with the coup, you just have additional stress put on families. And whenever that stress level increases, you just, there's just a lot more vulnerability for a child to be the brunt of a lot of things, you know, and even just of parents that are traumatized. And so um, it's interesting because one of your questions was, has it forced us to stop our work? And there are aspects of it that it has. So the last year, well, I guess in 2019, before COVID, we were training organizations all the time. So I think 2019, there were like 31 organizations, like children's homes that we were doing advocacy with, that we were helping to try to move them, shift their mindsets towards family-based care. And we were really active in that. So that in, in a sense shut down, but then now it's like, so our team, um, at first it was a really heavy blow. Like, how is this happening again? Like we were so far, how did this happen again? And everybody felt like we've got to get democracy. We've got to get democracy. I'm sorry, everybody on our team. We're, I think we were all feeling like we have to have democracy. It's so unjust. And I think the thing that the Lord has really settled in us is that we need Christ. Like Myanmar needs Jesus and they need Christianity and that will supersede democracy. And so, I mean, our team is on fire and we just launched like three different teams throughout Myanmar that are doing evangelism and then also child protection training for communities and families. And it's just really neat to see them so excited about it because it's, they're so excited to have something to do to respond because it's just felt so heavy. And we've been praying for a long time that the Lord would show us when he, when this kind of became clear. Um, I asked Daniel, 
is it safe? Is it safe? Is this something we can do while there's violence and there's, you know, upheaval and everywhere is just chaotic? And he said, it's not safe for anybody. And so they're not going to be any less safe by going out and sharing the gospel and going out and reaching to help. They want to do that. And so, um, you can pray for us in that. Yeah, no, that's, (laughs) we definitely need prayer. Yeah. And and, and so beautiful, you know, even just as you were um, sharing, um, you know, of course, democracy has a place, obviously this is the opposite of that, but, but what you and your team are saying is, is above everything else, what we need is the, is the kingdom of God. Right. And that's, you know, Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus was bringing the gospel of the kingdom of God. So when we say we need the gospel, it says we need kingdom ordering of things. And that's that in and of itself is a government structure. And it's actually in those places where, um, where we see the exact opposite. We see turmoil, we see social strife, we see power grabs, we see, you know, military takeover, uh, kids that are increasingly at risk of a lot of the things that um, us and your Thai and Burmese staff are, are looking to address. Uh, and it's in those places where actually we get some of the best opportunities to actually put the gospel on display, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and I just commend you guys for stepping up. Um, you know, I, I think when I hear stuff on the news, um, and you hear, you know, uh, obviously in recent years, there was a lot about the Rohingya and uh, the, the prevalence of refugees coming out of Myanmar. And, and now with the coup, you know, it can be a little debilitating at times to actually be like, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. There's refugees, there's violence, there's government takeover, there's this, there's that, you know, and sometimes we just have to say like, God, what do you want me to do? But when we hear about work like what you guys are doing. Um, it gives us something to do. We can pray for our friends at, at GCA or we can support their ministry or we can um, reach out to them and, and ask them, what do you need? You know, you guys, you guys are literally sending staff into Myanmar right now um, to, as you said, uh, teach people on how to protect kids and sharing the gospel. I mean, how incredible is that? You know, and, and maybe that's all we can do at this point. But you guys are doing that, and 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 I just think that's awesome. And and for certain, uh, you asked us to pray, and and we will be, we will certainly be praying for for that. Well, thank you to Ashley. I feel like uh, Ashley really left us in a good spot. Let's seek to protect children. Let's seek to spread the good news, even in the midst of challenges and and certainly let's pursue God's justice on behalf of orphan and vulnerable children. I would just invite, you know, as you've gotten to hear on this episode, uh, if you haven't heard these uh, episodes in their full length, we do talk about conflict, um, but we do talk about other things. So if you wanted to go back and listen to Ruslan's episode, that's episode 193. Kara was 183. And Ashley, we talked to back in episode 175. Um, And I would just even invite you, you know, as we are at the end of August now, and uh, it is only about a month away from the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit. And uh, if you enjoyed hearing from Ashley, and if you enjoyed hearing from Spencer in the last episode, and and if you can bear with uh, connecting with me a little bit, uh, we are going to be actually presenting uh, at the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit on 
transitioning where we'll be learning from great people like Ashley and Spencer, as well as uh, our friends Brent Phillips and Marissa Stam. We're going to be talking about transitioning your board. Uh, I know we've been talking about conflict, but given that Ashley was on <laughs> and Spencer was on the previous one, definitely wanted to uh, just kind of put it out there. We would love to connect with you in person at the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit. Uh, definitely stop by the One Million Home Table and 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 connect with us um, because we love having conversations. You know that's what Think Orphans all about. And whether we're talking about transitioning to family care or child protection or leaving care or whether we're t- even talking about conflict like we have done today, we want to continue these conversations. So would love to do that in person with you, or you can come to the workshop that I'll be doing with Ashley and others. And uh, we are just so grateful for uh, you sticking in this uh, episode with us. I hope it's given you something to think about. You know, when we talk about Think Orphan, um, we understand that orphan can even be kind of a polarizing term, but the reality is we have to be thinking about what happens when kids have lost uh, their parents. And that happens in conflict. That happens in other ways too. And uh, we want to think about how can we do that better. So thank you for being a part of the Think Orphan podcast. I look forward to connecting with you again in a couple weeks where we do our final compilation where we'll be looking at foster care in the United States. So uh, we hope that you're taking everything that you hear here on Think Orphan and that you use it to love and to serve orphan and vulnerable children with more and more excellence every single day. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.